I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, you're listening to The BIP Show. BIP is for business, investing and policy. That's what we're here to talk about. I'm Paul Colgan, director at CD Group. I'm here with James Whelan, macro strategist and investment manager at VFS Group here in Sydney. How are you, James? Good, Paul. Good to be here. Uh, the offices of Red Leaf Securities, always very thankful for them for hosting us here. Going to be a good show again. It is. Week. Joining us on the line from Amsterdam is Ken Vexler, managing director and chief investment officer at Acumen Management. How are you, Ken? Uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I'm very well. Looking forward to this chat, Colgan. So uh, keen to catch up. Uh, uh, we're here recording this on the 24th of September in Sydney. Our guest this week is one of the most respected analysts in the Australian market. Su Lin Ong is chief economist and head of relationship management at RBC Capital Markets. And she has a particular interest in fixed income and monetary policy, but she covers the whole picture. Uh, in the past, uh, she's also been an economic advisor in government. Su Lin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, look, we're going to take a really big look at uh, monetary and fis- fiscal policy this week. But can we just talk for a minute about the wobble we've seen in global equities over the past week? What do you make of it uh, and how much are you uh, reading into it, you know, with regards to the, um, with, uh, you know, pricing, but also the upcoming US election? Look, I think there's a few factors that are involved here that explain probably some of the movements of late and um, increasing concern maybe about the outlook. So to our mind, um, in particular, the global growth outlook um, is one that I think equity markets and all investors are thinking about. Um, We've seen a decent bounce in activity after very sharp contraction in Q2 across much of the developed world. And you can see that in a range of indicators, possibly best cap by the PMIs. But what you're starting to see is a little bit of a loss of momentum. Um, Not surprising when you think about uh, the second wave that's going on in Europe, the UK, um, and the uncertainty there. So a bit of a loss of momentum. Um, I think some divergence as well, you know, while the US and uh, China seems to be going pretty strong still, there's other parts of the world clearly that are lagging. So I think that global growth outlook and the uncertainty is one reason. Um, I think uncertainty about further fiscal stimulus is another for the US. You know, there's still no resolution really on uh, this next package. Um, It probably won't be um, finalised before the US election. Um, And we know fiscal policy is really what's keeping economies going at the moment. Um, You know, monetary policy can only do so much more. So that key US package still uncertain. And then finally, clearly the US election. Um, You know, there's going to be volatility in the next few weeks. Um, In the run up, the polls have shifted. Um, You know, markets are thinking about what does does a Biden um, administration mean? What if there's a clean sweep? Who will be US Treasury Secretary? Um, or alternatively, you know, does Trump manage to get back in? So, uh, you know, increasing uncertainty as we get closer. Yeah, we've, um, we've got this, uh, you know, Supreme Court nomination uh, coming up. So, you know, complicating the political picture a little bit uh, even further. So, uh, yeah, it's certainly going to be um, an interesting 
uh, run into um, to the poll in November there. Um, now, Ken, uh, from talking to you during the week, I know you are uh, very keen to talk to uh, Sue Lynn about the RBA. So uh, here's your chance. Over to you, mate. Perfect. Sue thank you for uh, coming on. And yes, the RBA, my, my, my pet sort of... Hate, love, depending on time of the week and week of the year. Um, but basically, very quickly, Guy Bell's speech this week, the elephant in the room. Um, on the back of it, immediately, we had NAB and more prominently Westpac uh, come out and, and others as well, calling for the cash rate to be moved to 10 basis points, so a 15 basis point slash, uh, the term funding facility to join that uh, ballpark as well. Um and more to the point, for that all to happen at the very next meeting rather than waiting for the uh, Melbourne Cup meeting um, and, and that next meeting coinciding with the release of the federal budget later that day. So first off, can you run us through what RBC, your RBC's view is, uh, is on this? Sure. So we are of the view that there will be further easing from the Reserve Bank, and that's been our base case for some time, um, but we have it pencilled in for early 2021. So similar type um, set of measures, a cut in the cash rate to 10 basis points, the three-year yield target also dropping to 10 basis points, um, as well as the rate on the term funding facility. So all of that from the current 25 basis points. Our thoughts around timing is really that at this juncture, um, we can see, you know, outside of Victoria, we can see some encouraging signs in other parts of the country, um, you know, everywhere from Western Australia, Queensland, New South Wales, when we look across retail, employment, mobility data, you know, as um, these states have continued to open up and, and uh, productions come back online, um, we're seeing, you know, a bit more signs of growth and Victoria is moving in the right direction. You know, we may well see uh, easing in restrictions a little bit bit earlier. Um, you know, the, the Premier is meant to make an announcement on Sunday. Um, and I think that will go a long way in terms of confidence. So from the perspective of where the economy is right now, um, absolutely, Victoria's set back. We won't see that bounce in activity in Q3 that many developed countries um, are seeing at the moment. It's pushed out more into Q4 and, and into Q1. But, you know, there are some encouraging signs. Our worry really is by the time we get into early 2021, um, as some of the key incomes support measures, JobKeeper um, pairs back further and eventually ceases, um, you know, JobSeeker may not return, uh, you know, may not hold at these levels as well. Um, that's where, and, and obviously some of these mortgage deferrals um, end in early 21. That's where we think there may be a bit more pressure on activity and the labour market. And it makes more sense, I think, for the RBA to, to wait till then um, and, and deliver some further easing. But I think what we're very mindful of is that there's been a lot of speculation this week. Um, you know, markets have moved to price in a lot more from the banks sooner rather than later. Um, I guess, Ken, as you say, you know, the love-hate type relationship with the bank, you know, we, we feel that too sometimes. I think sometimes markets really back this central bank into a corner. We've seen it um, yeah. in recent years that the speculation intensifies, markets kind of whip themselves into a bit of a fury. It's almost fully priced. And if you're going to do it, you know, what, you know, do it when the market expects it. So we are very mindful 
example of that um, and it's entirely possible that the easing that we anticipate in early next year comes sooner than that. I think your point about um, it happening on budget day is an interesting one because I think what, we see, what we're seeing in Australia, like many other parts of the world, is a real blurring between monetary and fiscal policy. Um, you know, there's an increased coordination. Um, we know that both arms of policy are helping each other out. And to be fair, um, you know, the banks are probably part of all of that as well. They're all pretty much in bed mm-hmm. together, um, which is helpful in terms of supporting the economy. But um, we also know that the RBA is pretty sensitive to this idea that they're funding directly um, budget deficits and government spending. So a bit of delineation, I think, between the day the budget is delivered um, and yeah. actual policy action may not be a bad thing as well. Um, that's why yeah. you know we're not really in the October cap. To, to your point um, with regarding uh, regarding early 21 and, and numbers, maybe productivity and, and growth and whatever else rolling off, doesn't that speak, uh, you know, to my mind, it speaks to acting sooner rather than later by the RBA. And I, I, I agree, uh, doing it on October, preempting the budget, I mean, this is, that that's a political stunt as far as I'm concerned and something that <clears throat> last time we saw that, we saw Glenn Stevens do that um, and... Yeah, I, I, I don't agree with it. Bill Evans, as he's called, so be it. Uh, but it does speak to my mind to, to doing it, let's say, in, in November. But l- let me let me rephrase this. That's the RBC view in terms of timing aside, what you think they will be doing. If you if you were running policy uh, down in modern places, as you previously sort of were in those myths, what do you think they should be doing? Like, you know, is this the right course of action? I don't think um, there's very much choice, really. I think what you're looking at is um, a very, you know, slow recovery um, whereby there are still a number of structural headwinds for the economy, particularly around households who are heavily indebted, um, face ongoing stagnant wages, low productivity, and that's all going to be exacerbated by a weaker labour market and, you know, what will still be an elevated level of unemployment for some time. So, you know, it's been a big shock to the economy. Um, we are in starting to see a recovery, um, but it is uncertain um, and it will be fragile and it will need ongoing support um, from both the monetary and fiscal levers. Fiscal policy is far more effective. There's no doubt about that. Um, mm. It can be better targeted. It's quicker to, to be delivered. Um, it's far more effective at this stage of the cycle. But that doesn't mean the RBA has no, um, you know, no more firepower, that it can't be effective. And we don't expect it to stand by idly if um, activity, and particularly the labour market, um, underwhelms. And so I think to your point, Ken, about, well, if you can see that things are going to be softer in um, the first half of next year, why would you not move sooner? Well, we would argue that this bank's pretty reactive. Um, It needs to be pushed into action. And we know Mm. it doesn't really love being in this unconventional space. Um, You know, it's kind of been forced down this route. Um, And so I think they need um, some triggers to go. So what are those triggers? They probably are signs of weaker growth next year, a softer labour market, and potentially some um, some more easing by global central banks around the world. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask. I mean, and, and you've sort of drawn me to the next point in terms of the efficacy of it. I appreciate, and you know, we're going to we're going to talk a bit further on about the homogeneity of policy response, you know, in Australia and globally, and whatever else, fiscal and monetary. But the efficacy of what even the RBA is doing here, or, or 
I mean, we're not going to talk about the Fed because that's a that's a different story. But to your mind, the efficacy of cutting 15 basis points, uh, cementing the fact that you know you want your three year curve to look like X and it's going to look like X and and there is even potential for depending on how it all works out technically for rates to go negative overnight in some junctures you know in terms of the actual literal funding uh, funding window what's the efficacy here I mean is it really going to make much of a difference or, or is the focus really should and should really be on the fiscal side so there's no doubt the focus should be on the fiscal side but um, what cutting those key rates does is it sends a couple of key messages. Um, The first is it strengthens the bank's forward guidance. So it sends that message that rates are going to be extraordinarily low for several Mm. years. And I think that's quite important. The transmission through to, you know, key rates, key lending Mm. rates that matter for the real economy, particularly mortgages, you know, business loans, that is a bit more questionable. I mean, the Price of money is cheap. It's not what's yeah, stopping. It's free. Yeah, it's, it's free. not what's stopping credit growth. Credit growth is weak because of demand. It's not because of um, really the price of money, um, nor to some degree the, the supply or the availability. So um, that is is a little bit more questionable, which is why I think fiscal policy matters. But really, sending that signal and keeping front end yields low and forcing particularly fixed income investors further out the curve, which then pushes longer dated yields lower, um, is important important because that has an impact on other key borrowing costs, primarily governments, both Commonwealth and state. So that's where this linkage is, I think, between monetary and fiscal policy and how intertwined they are, that if governments are going to support um, the recovery, they're going to put measures in place, they're going to spend more and budget deficits are going to be larger at both the Commonwealth and state level, then the RBA can play a role in keeping those borrowing costs as low as possible Mm. and potentially even lower than where they are now. So that's really um, the you know, another key transmission mechanism through to the real economy. Can I just ask you, Suleen, about that? Because I think there'll be a lot of people out there who'll be thinking, you know, we'll we'll have heard talk about um, the RBA, you know, more talk this way this week about the RBA looking at unconventional uh, policy options or or you know full QE program where they um, you know currently they're bu- buying bonds to target a three year rate, um, but they may go on a more expensive program where they would buy ten year bonds or um, something like that um, uh, to weigh down the, the the rate on those bonds. Um, but maybe can you talk briefly about how that like. To somebody, say, who's a policy analyst out there um, and not in finance, uh, but who has a mortgage uh, or is thinking about buying a house, um, how does the RBA buying those 10-year bonds make a difference to that person or, or people like that in the real economy? It doesn't really directly impact um, your average person that has a mortgage that's probably floating or at least partly fixed. And if it is fixed, it's probably a two to three year type fix. So longer dated yields don't really directly impact. Um, What they do though is a bank such as, you know, other central banks that buy much longer dated securities and keep the yield curve much um, flatter than would otherwise be the case and yields much lower. Um, Other countries... um, their mortgage rates, for example, are priced off long-end yields. So it is more impactful there. For them to do it in Australia, it would be, um, I think, really for reasons around um, government funding and government borrowing levels. And that's the transmission through to uh, the broader economy. So, you know, governments borrow 
much further out beyond that three-year mark. So in Australia, for example, you know, thus far this calendar year, we've had a new 2031 bond, a new 2025, um, a new long bond, the 2051, so way out at that 30-year mark. Um, that what, what was the rate that they... Um, I was like, oh, I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's pretty low. Um, under one, under 30-year? Yeah, uh, not 100% no, sure. No, no, so... Thirty, it'd be it'd be a touch of it, sort of one and a bit, not, nothing major. But if you discount like it all the way back, tens are about eighty yeah. basis points yeah. at the moment. So yeah. it's yeah. going to be a bit. If you discount it all the way back, they're basically paying you. But anyway, yeah, okay. I mean, you know, you can borrow money. It just means the government can lock in very cheap money for a very long period of time mm. to fund all its expenditures. So. You know, the question is, can the RBA play a role in that? Can they um, be active in the bond market, keep yields lower than would otherwise be the case um, and lower those borrowing costs for the government? And then if the government spends um, and implements measures, um, you know, targeted and designed to help the economy recover, that's how it effectively, you know, helps. And one, one sure. briefly, if, if I could ask you, what is the argument in your mind? Uh, lots of people talk about this, but I'd like to hear what the argument is in your mind for the RBA not buying directly 10-year ten, ten bonds off the Treasury. I think it, what it is really, the, the very direct financing um, I think it implies what it does is it starts to move down that, um, you know, the, the, the discussion around modern monetary theory, such that there's a view that there's no real, um, you know, there's no real discipline on governments, that governments then get the green light to spend, you know, and it's not particularly well spent, it's not particularly well targeted, it's, it's you know, it can be compromised by a whole number of um, factors. And so, you know, when governments know that there is effectively a backstop bid the whole time um, and, you know, you can spend a lot and you can issue a tonne load of bonds and there's going to be a big, large, sticky buyer, unlimited, um, that's where the discipline starts. That, that's to. right. So then uh, the currency, I mean, I, yeah, I've been in the market for... God knows too many years and, and, and what and whatever else. But the Aussie and and more more to the point, the relationship that the RBA has with the Aussie, it's always been my contention that the currency is their preferred lever of policy choice, as it were, without directly actually, you know, touching it, as it were. So so it's always been basically jawbinding, it's always been intimation, it's always been whispers, smoke and mirrors about the fact that of course especially in, in recent years, they would prefer a weaker currency. Yeah? Um, it, it helps with, with all their policy uh, decisions and, and generally the, the, the backdrop to, to what they're trying to achieve. This week, also in the, in the DeBell speech, he made reference to the fact that intervention was a policy option, right? So, you know, he doubted that, that it would be effective. He doubted, he sort of, you know, doubted that they'd get involved as, as such because they never have really... So my question is, you know, do you see any chance at all, you know, of the RBA getting directly involved in, in the in, in the FX markets, or are we just said simply going to see, you know, an extended period of jawboning as we have previously? So that's a good question. Um, I think it's unlikely that they will be intervening in the currency anytime soon. And really, it be, it, what it reflects is it's. I think, deep-seated um, view that, uh, 
you know, intervening um, when a currency is not that out of line with fundamentals is pretty pointless, really. Um, And that really is the key. And it's a bit ironic, I think, because the RBA you know, is, is uh, it's not uncomfortable, but it would prefer the currency lower. But it's actually mm-hmm. its lack of policy action, particularly in the last few months, that have contributed to the firmer currency <laughs> and an Aussie dollar Enjoy on a that. trade-weighted basis that, you know, was up near a two-year high in September. So, you know, mm-hmm. if you talk to a lot of offshore investors, the view of the RBA has been, well, it's a pretty reluctant player in this unconventional space. Up until the recent announcement on the term funding facility and a little bit of resume bond buying in three-year yields. It was, you know, sitting idly on the sidelines for much of, what, May, June, July? I think it was, you know, it's pretty quiet. It's pretty inactive, as most other central banks were still delivering policy um, easing. And so, you know, that very much, in our view, um, partly contributed to um, some of the resilience in the Aussie dollar. Um, To our mind, it's not surprising that um, they started bond buying again, um, you know, not long after Victoria stepped up the restrictions um, and then talked about the extension of the TFF not long after the Fed um, talked about its new framework. So... um, it, to some degree, I think, has, has you know, ironically contributed to, to a little bit of this strength. Now, there's no doubt as well that clearly, um, you know, resilience in China, the recovery there that seems broader-based um, and, you know, strength of key commodity prices, iron ore, is another key contributor. So, you know, your two sort of key fundamentals, um, commodity prices, terms of trade and rate differentials, I mean, both of those have been supportive of a stronger currency and that's what we've seen. Mm. So, you know, I think it'd be unlikely in those circumstances for the bank to intervene. Um, I think really what they will have to do is be more active on the policy front to temper sure. the rise um, in the currency. Um, and that, in part, I think, has has uh, delivered, you know, some of their action of late and a bit of a shift in their tone and a bit more of a turn dovish. Okay, last last question on the, on the currency before we move on to sort of global uh, policy responses. Uh, within, say, a, a 2 to 3% band you know, of error, let's say, where do you see the Aussie by year-end? Um, so, look, I think the Aussies had a little bit of a correction, but the, the odds are it's going to stay, we suspect, in a sort of, you know, 70 is a key support level. Psychologically, it's important, but it's also about the 100-day moving average. So, you know, if it breaks through that, then it's probably going a little bit lower. But, you know, part of the story is obviously... the the US dollar as well and what it does. Um, And clearly, if there is any, um, you know, if there is any kind of ongoing risk off um, tone, if there's uncertainty, you know, ahead of some of those key factors we were talking about, um, then the Aussie is going to come under a little bit of pressure. But, you know, the base case view, I think, of 2021 still looking better than than this year should, should keep the currency reasonably um, well supported. So, look, if it ba- breaks through 70, it, it probably is heading a bit lower, but I think the kind of 70 to 73 cent range that we've seen... Yeah, um, makes sense. Yeah, it is probably where it's going to be over the next little while and uh, into year end. And, and like I said, I think it's more than just about the Aussie dollar. I think, you know, the, the bigger trend is in the big dollar. Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, uh, Sulin, uh, I'll just jump in here and hello. 
G'day everyone, welcome to the show. The um, uh, sorry, I don't get much of a say in these things. Ken, Ken is Ken is the man when it comes to this stuff, and so I get to sort of chip in on this one. More talking, sort of um, bigger picture on this one. Now you mentioned at the beginning um, of the podcast that you about the graying or sort of the blurring of the line between central bank uh, between the monetary and the fiscal. Is that a good thing? Do, do, like I'm I, I'm the I'm the master of the free kick question, and so I'm going to give you the free kick uh, the free kick answer. Is it a good thing? And more to the point, do you see it ungraying and unblurring? Does it need to? Uh, are we just on the way now? Um, I think it is a good thing um, in the sense that we have had a massive shock to this economy. That's and why would happen? <laughs> um, and you know, I guess when we say, well, Australia only contracted seven percent Q two, and most of the developed world went minus ten percent, it, well, it's kind not the of <laughs> yeah, it's not a great benchmark. I mean, it is a huge shock, and it's had, and you know, we've lost close to a million jobs, of which we, you know, we have recouped um, a great deal. But the first lot of growth that you recoup and jobs that you recoup is reasonably easy. It's the next. 50% that is a lot harder. The and confidence so, jobs. The, the, yeah, the little, yeah, and so I think um, you do have to have all levers of policy um, being pulled. I think that um, the coordination um, is is one that will be supportive of the economy as it recovers and it will be an uncertain and fragile recovery that may see setbacks at time and where confidence, as you say, is really key and it's really hard to, you know, to, to make sure that that continues. Um, and so, yes, I, I do think it's important. I think what is key, though, is that fiscal policy in a recovery should look different to what it does in the depths of a crisis. And so, you know, measures that um, in the depths of a crisis where you've had a huge amount of demand destruction and all you're trying to do is really just keep everything going and keep households sort of lost jobs with some income and, you know, keep businesses sort of quasi going until things get better. Um, they're not the types of... And, you know, we've had great policies. JobKeeper's the obvious example there. They're not the policies that are the best as you come out of recovery and you're trying to, um, you know, boost longer-term growth. You're trying to um, – you've got an economy that is changing and jobs and skills that change. And so you need different measures, I think, um, in the recovery phase. And that's where um, measures in particular that contain a reform element that help boost productivity, potential growth – that's what you're looking for. And that's why I guess as we come into this upcoming budget, you know, what we would like to see is the bringing forward of the stage two income tax cuts. Um, more measures around housing, social in particular, um, investment incentives and infrastructure. And when you think about those types of measures, all of them have, I guess, that that common ingredient of um, trying to make the system more competitive, more efficient and lifting that longer term pro productivity. And so that looks different to fiscal policy in the depths of a recession. A little bit. We'll, we'll, we'll come back around to the to the drinking from the cup of central bank intervention on a day-to-day -day basis, which is interesting. But but at every lunch and every client and every person that I talk to now, I talk about what would you do if you were, if you were the treasurer? What would you do if you were um, Josh? And every single person has spat half a stake across at me and said payroll tax, payroll tax, payroll tax. Is that – is, are they right? Well, you know, it's no coincidence that – there has been a pause in payroll tax in a number of states. Um, I mean, payroll tax, unfortunately, is done at state level, not the Commonwealth, but... Um, oh, that's, yeah, that's a good point, yeah. There is clearly merit in not taxing, you know, 
labour, really. Yeah. Um, so, yes, there, there is some merit in that, but that's going to be outside the remit of the It's obviously, the it's, it's, well, that's, that's yes, but... Uh, um, but, you know, this, some of the states have done that in the depths of the crisis. Will they continue to do so? Well, the, the problem that you have with that is you have to generally find some other source of revenue, right? The state's not going to give up a key revenue source, um, and the same discussion goes around stamp duty, um, that it is a pretty inefficient tax, um, but you've got to look for a, a different revenue source, and if that is land tax, then that's a, another discussion as well. We have a, we have the wonderful National Cabinet to deal with these things now, so maybe... Well, there's a new forum. I, you know, I think it's much more effective than COAG. So. I think that they have, they have proven quite well that they could successfully work from a federal and state level, mm. um, or people working together when they have... A, um, a situation, which is why it's worked. I'm being tongue in cheek the entire way through. I couldn't even finish that sentence there about, about federal <laughs> and state governments working together on this one. But uh, look, um, and a final one: if we just talk about that federal sort of drink, uh, drinking from the cup of central bank intervention on a day to day level. I mean, we've got my my prime example was um, Jerome Powell talking, you know, at, at his testimony in Congress, I think it was his last month's one or, or the month before, saying that if more people wore masks, if, if it was able to deal with the pandemic a bit better, then our job would be a bit easier. Effectively, you can sort of see how, how the, the line has blurred so much that now you've got the, the, the head of the central bank sort of advising on medical policy to make it easier for a central bank to, 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 to do their job a bit better. Well, which- I think that reflects the fact that this has been a very unique recession that's been clearly caused by a health pandemic and the accompanying measures to deal with that pandemic. And we know that the trajectory of economy of all economies is really going to follow the trajectory of this virus. And, you know, nowhere is that clearer than what we saw in Victoria and the setback to the recovery and what we're seeing in parts of Europe and the UK now. So, you know, central banks, are, you know, it's a pretty tough situation for them, I think, right now. And I guess, you know, the question that you ask about the blurring of lines, you know, is it a good thing? Can central banks do more? Will it be efficient? Well, I don't think they have any choice, you know, to stand by um, and have not stepped in and, and done as much as possible, pushing the boundaries in many um, countries, um, including Australia, I don't think that would have been acceptable. I mean, without a lot of um, the coordination and the stimulus, both from governments um, and central banks and and in Australia, the banking system, um, we would have seen a much deeper recession and, you know, a real struggle in the recovery. So I'm not really sure there's much choice. Yeah, certainly. So, so, and, and to that point, that, that's, I suppose, what I was hoping to get around to. Look, globally, and, and as James has mentioned, the Fed, and we've spoken, obviously, about the RBA and, and, and the local authorities, government, etc. There seems to be, and in recent years, now more so than ever, uh, a homogeneity of policy response, right? So the central banks have, they, I, I hasten to say, they haven't yet exhausted everything they can because it's seemingly an endless arsenal, but... Um, you know they're coming close to it. Therefore, the pushback onto the onto the fiscal side of things and whatever else. Realistically, what we're seeing across the board is a policy response everywhere that's pretty much identical: cut rates, uh, additional QE, fiscal stimulus, where and what they can. My question is this: Is there any real point of differentiation? You know, when we, when you're looking across economies, besides the fact that. They have different starting points in terms of current account deficits, different amount of zeros that they've thrown fiscally at the problem, some less, some more. Uh, you know, in the bigger picture, how do we differentiate, if at all, 
between nations and economies and subsequently from at least from an FX point of view and investing you know where do you, where do you pick your battles as it were um so i think that there has been some common elements clearly in the policy responses and you know a good example of that um is most countries have had some kind of wage subsidy program um and 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 that's been new in a sense and and so there is some commonality but i do think that in um a number of countries policy has been tailored for um, their own circumstances. And Australia is a good example of that. I mean, you know, we are at the early stages of unconventional policy. Um, It looks and smells different to other parts of the world because of the way the mortgage market works here and that, you know, we don't use, um, you know, we don't use 30-year rate type mortgages. And so I think that um, there has been, uh, you know, different responses depending on... um, economies and and their borrowing structures and, 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 you know, more broadly, um, you know, some of the differences there. Um, As well, I think on the fiscal side, there are, you know, some measures that will be more important to some countries than others. And so, um, you know, I guess this discussion around payroll tax, um, stamp duty, I mean, again, um, some of those are a little bit more unique to Australia. So I think that comes to the efficacy um, question that, that really is at the heart of all of this, right? You know, in the depths of the recession, you just throw a lot of money around and you really hope you just some of it <laughs> sticks and you just get yeah. through the worst of it. Thereafter, I think your measures can be a bit more nuanced and a bit more tailored um, to, to, you know, certain countries. And for Australia, we know what that means. I mean, you need um, a more competitive tax system here. Um, you know, you need um, greater efficiencies in labour markets. You need a stronger focus on skills and, educa- and education um, when we look at what's happening and, and really, you know, do we have the digital skills and the next generation of talent? Does, do they have that? And so I think you can tailor um, your policy is a little different for different countries. It's interesting, isn't it? Because one of the big things that has been a big driver of success is um, people and capital coming to Australia for a long time uh, because it's a great place to live, it's safe, uh, you know, it's a good lifestyle and you can build good businesses here, it's close to Asia, all of that. Um, so uh, on the way out, they're going to have to, you know, it'll be very helpful if the policy settings are there to, to restart that in a big way. Um, once everything else opens up. Um, look, it's been a fascinating conversation and we are tight for time. So it's been fantastic t- talking to you. Um, uh, you can find us on iTunes at The BIP Show. We're on Twitter. It's at the underscore BIP underscore show. And we're on Facebook too. Just search The BIP Show. Don't forget to subscribe, rate us and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. We're all there individually or uh, at Colgo, at James Whelan 42 and at Ken Wexler. Uh, Sulanong, uh, Chief Economist at RBC Capital Markets here in Sydney. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's been good, James. Thank you. Thanks, mate. Good on you. Uh, and enjoy your day in uh, Amsterdam, Ken. Thank you, Colgo and Sullivan. Thanks for putting up with my uh, RBA uh, tirade. Oh, no. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully we're not recording that. You know, tirade's fair, I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, the show is produced by uh, Eamon Connolly and Rick Salter and we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.